This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, we are ready to get started. Alumni, uh, students, uh, guests, it's great to have everyone here tonight. Um, thank you for joining us. We have um, a Dean's Distinguished Speaker event tonight that will be very exciting. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming. It's great to see everyone here. I know it's getting to the end of the academic year. It's a busy time, so it's great um, to have you here. Uh, I want to thank uh, a couple of our business partners who uh, may be here, um, representatives from Sierra Energy and First Northern Bank. Um, I want to take a few minutes before we get to the main event tonight and, and introduce our fantastic speaker to just give some quick updates on the school and how things have been going. Um, this is... Uh, we're nearing the end of the school's 35th year, um, and we continue to have great success as a result of our students, our faculty, um, our fantastic staff, and, uh, and academic programs. Two years ago, we had the um, happy annual ritual of the U.S. News & World Report uh, rankings coming out. The MBA program ranked 45th, up several places from last year, out of more than 400 programs, so we're proud. This is the... Uh, 21st consecutive year that the MBA program has been ranked in the top 50 um, by U.S. News, and so we're proud of that and, and appreciate the, the support that got us there. Um, our uh, Master's in Professional Accountancy program also continues to go strong. Um, it's growing each year uh, as we're in our fourth year now, and we are hoping to repeat our performance as having the number one pass rate on the CPA exam in the state. So the impact students, I know, no pressure, guys, but keep studying. Um, uh, and speaking of pressure, our MBA students, uh, the class of 2015 broke records in terms of our salary numbers and our placement record, uh, starting salary of 112000 and 94% placement three months after graduation. Um, I am told by reliable sources that the 2016 MBA class is on track to break some placement records as well. So um, keep working at those interviews and, and negotiations. Uh, finally, our part-time program also continues to be uh, highly successful. U.S. News also ranks those pro programs, and we ranked 30 out of more than 300 part-time programs uh, in the U.S. And this is the fifth consecutive year uh, for programs that aren't very old um, that we've been ranked in the top 10% there. We, um, uh, in addition to these uh, advances in graduate education, we have also been working to try to expand the school's footprint into the undergraduate uh, education space. We are um, opening up our technology management minor to all majors across our campus, and we were pleased that the, uh, that made the, the UC Davis uh, campus webpage today. We're going to offer that minor during the summer so students from all over the university can get a, a business minor in um, just a summer or a little more. Um, and also, if you haven't been on campus lately, you may not have heard that we are also pursuing an undergraduate business major, uh, which has generated a lot of excellent conversations on our campus, and um, that is moving its way through the Academic Senate, and we uh, expect to hear something on that um, sometime soon. Even sooner, we have a master's 
of science and business analytics that we're very excited about. That is in the final. It's passed the system-wide academic review and is just waiting for a signature, I'm told, from the UC provost. And that really should come any day. And we expect to launch that in the fall of 2017. We were talking a lot tonight already with our guest about um, the value of data in business. And that's really what that program will be about, is training students to uh, have skills with data, but to use them for business purposes. So all of these accomplishments, of course, uh, are made possible by the many people who support the school, as well as our faculty and students and staff. And so I'm particularly pleased tonight to welcome um, really one of the, the um, most longtime and, and generous supporters of the Graduate School of Management. Um, you, of course, will recognize the name of tonight's guest if you have ever stepped into our beautiful uh, home next door on campus, uh, Gallagher Hall. Uh, so in September 2009, we opened Morris J. Gallagher Jr. Hall, um, and this was made possible by a generous gift from our guest, Maury Gallagher, and his wife, Marcia. Um, and that really has made a lasting impact um, and really changed the, the nature and the, and the um, outward appearance and I think the, the um, culture and achievements of the school. Um, shortly after that, in 2011, Gallagher Hall, as many of you know, was also earned, it earned a LEED Platinum certification, um, so is the highest green building designation possible, and we, of course, are all very proud of that and, and enjoy the beautiful building. Um, uh, this, uh, you know, Gallagher Hall, we were talking about when it first went up, uh, it was Gallagher and the Mandavi Performing Arts Center, and it, those two buildings really started what has now become this beautiful gateway district that is, is part of the campus's front door. And so um, I just want to take a moment before uh, a formal introduction of our guest to thank Maury Gallagher for, Gallagher for his generosity that has, has really launched this part of campus. So thank you, Maury, for your contributions. And so now, to get really uh, on to the introduction for tonight, um, uh, Maury Gallagher's relationship with the University of California and with UC Davis in particular goes back a bit. He was an undergraduate here in the early 1970s and graduated with a degree in history. Uh, he then went on to earn his MBA from our, our friend down the road, UC Berkeley. Uh, Maury has served on the Dean's Advisory Council for many years at the Graduate School of Management, uh, and he and his wife also established the Maurice J. and Marcia G. Gallagher Chair in Finance, which is held by our own Professor Brad Barber. Uh, during the last major fundraising campaign in which the university raised $1 billion uh, in philanthropic support, uh, Maury served as honorary co-chair of that campaign, a really critical volunteer role um, in that um, effort. Now, when he is not um, doing things to support and help education in UC Davis, Maury, of course, uh, runs Allegiant Travel Company and its major subsidiary, Allegiant Air. He has served as chief executive officer of Allegiant Air since 2003 and was named chairman of the board in 2006. Allegiant is a publicly traded company with the current stock market value of more than $3 billion. Um, prior to... Uh, Joining Allegiant, Maury has been involved with many other companies, including um, Empower Communications Corp., a telecom company. Uh, he served there as CEO from 97 to 99 and chairman of the board from 96 to 2002. He's also, he was also a founder of ValueJet Airlines, uh, the precursor to AirTran Holdings, 
And also, um, even earlier, was a principal owner and executive at West Air, a commuter airline. So he has had aviation in his blood and, in, and has been a part of that business for a long time. Um, so we are going to, in a moment, I'd like to welcome Maury to the stage. A couple of uh, logistics first. So first, if you um, need to exit during the uh, event, we are trying to film this and we'll be sitting having a conversation, so please use the sides. Also tonight, we wanted to, we're going to give Maury a chance to say a bit about his work and about Allegiant, so he'll have a short presentation, and then I'll come up and join him, and we'll have some Q&A, and then we will also have time for audience Q&A at the very end. So with no further ado, I've done uh, plenty of talking tonight. Um, please join me in welcoming an entrepreneur, businessman, visionary, uh, visionary philanthropist, and supporter, and a proud UC Davis alum. Um, join me in welcoming Maury Gallagher to the stage. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Test, test. Um, that's going to be a lot of things to follow and, and uh, to deal with. But uh, um, I, as Ann said, uh, Dean said, uh, I'll take you through a little bit of uh, just what I've done. And uh, I'm a basically an aviation junkie. Um, I've got kerosene in my veins, all those little uh, types of things, and I was fortunate enough to be involved in the airline business uh, at the start of it, which really uh, was 1978, October, when the Congress passed the Deregulation Act and President Carter at the time signed the bill. Prior to that time, uh, those of you old enough uh, flew around in a regulated environment, the Civil Aeronautics Board, everything was fixed. You had fixed fares, you had fixed routes, and if you wanted to do anything, you went back and applied and had your lawyers spend thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, and then they said, no, you can't raise fares, you can't change routes. So PSA and uh, Southwest were very much successful intrastate carriers in Texas and here in California, and uh, based on that model, deregulation was passed. And there was a tremendous amount of deregulation passed in that time frame which has really helped the business world and, and I think the country as well. But you know, banking deregulation, you had uh, transportation, with trucking and things like that, airline. And so today you have a much more robust world because of this stuff. But let me take you through uh, the latest venture. I'm actually just going to go to the maps. So um, this is, as, as the dean said, this is my third time. The first one was a commuter business. And again, at the foster, uh, beginning of deregulation, the airline business in this country was all point to point. You didn't have hub and spoke. And if you look at a natural way you'll move things, uh, things being packages, people, whatever, they're going to be most efficient when you're running them through a, what they call a hub, and you, you feed that hub, you do all the changeover, and you leave. Fed, Fred Smith started Federal Express in 1973, and guess what city he chose? He chose Memphis. Why did he choose Memphis? It's in the center. And why else did you choose it? It had good weather. It's south. It's not north. So that was how that all got started, and that was the natural evolution that you've seen in the aviation world with your big hubs in Chicago, Dallas, uh, Atlanta's a huge hub. Uh, you've got some East Coast hubs and West Coast hubs that launch your international stuff, Newark, uh, San Francisco, and things like that. We were fortunate to be the feeder to that hub system, and we joined up with United uh, with a company called West Air. And when my partner and I bought the company in 83, it was... Ten little, ten little airplanes, three or four million dollars of business, mortgage my you-know-what to get into it, but we were right place, right time, and uh, we sold that company uh, when it was doing 270 million dollars ten years later. Uh, 100 airplanes, 2,500 people. Um, went into ValueJet, as we mentioned, that was a very good company. The thing about that company that I was really very proud of is we pushed uh, ticketless. 
Up until that time, you had to have a piece of paper to get on an airplane. And it turns out that paper was just the cash. That was your cash receipt. The sales effort was not tied to this, the cash receipts effort. So you had to bring your cash and give it to the ticket clerk uh, to get on the airplane. And we said, that's stupid. So we built the automation, and we put the sales and the cash together. And we started that in 93. Uh, it was a 486 tower with 30, 30, pass, or 30 of the things were running the res system, and 30 were running the operation. And that's how we started that company that uh, uh, you know, did $500 million worth of business in the space of uh, 24 months. So it was a great place, great time. I might add, if you wanted to make money and, and kind of get involved in startup airlines were a pretty good place, because if you did it right, you could do something. Um, I must tell you, uh, every time I leave the airline business, I find out how hard it is to, to get people to give you money. It's pretty easy to get somebody to give you a ticket on an airplane to buy a ticket, but I tried telephone business, selling somebody a, a phone line in 1998 for $15 a month. That was damn hard. So uh, anyway, I've got a bias towards this. But I got involved in this business in uh, 2001. Uh, the friend of mine who started it was the IT guy, brilliant guy, but he wasn't terribly good at some of this stuff. And he got himself sideways. I became the largest creditor, and uh, we took over the company in July of 2001. That's what they had. What do you do? I got a certificate. That's a tough thing to get. Fly, you know, FAA said we could do this. Government said we could do it. Um, <clears throat> I lived in Las Vegas at the time. And so we started looking at different ways to make this thing work because that was about throw good money after bad, as they say. I'd already lost the other money. So the uh, extent of this was I'm going to do everything that everybody, different than everybody else does. If you're entrepreneurial, and you're looking for investment, for instance, don't bring people a Me Too business plan. If you think you've got a better pizza shop and you can be Joe on the corner, and Joe's been there for 10 years, and Joe's got a great pizza, and he's got a great following, he's got size, he's got market, why are you going to be able to beat Joe at his game? It's not to say you can't, but that's a pretty bold understatement. It's a bit arrogant, frankly, too. But if you can you put a twist on things and do it better, so the twist here was to focus on leisure against the business. The airline business is focused on two types of people. Historically, the biggest func or, uh, part of that thing is what I call uh, OPM. Those are people that use other people's money. And then there's the YM sector, your money. And that's Southwest got built on your money and PSA. So those are the, the types of things. And we built this on a leisure-based customer who was a YM customer. And so we started doing different things. And um, in about three or four years, we figured out how to do it, how what size airplane, what frequency, how to structure the business as far as all those things. So virtually everything we've done is 180 degrees different than everybody else relative to we fly airplanes and we need pilots and mechanics and things like that. But as far as the business model goes, our frequency patterns are different. We, our customer is different. We keep all of our airplanes in one place so it's a better functional uh, operation from a cost perspective. And if you're going to fly a leisure customer, they're incredibly price sensitive. So this is 2004. The formula is pretty good. We've got older airplanes that we don't fly a lot. Uh, we fly them half as much as the Southwest does, for instance. And so that model right there is, is starting to work pretty good. And we, uh, we look to expand it. And so now we're uh, into Florida. So this is 2007. We opened up Orlando uh, in um, 2005. Um, and we did um, uh, St. Pete uh, 2007. And so the model just keeps growing. And the interesting thing about it is people weren't interested in competing with us. If you're going to start your own business, 
I recommend first and foremost finding a niche that is pretty rock solid. Not to say you can't make other things work, but if you have a niche that you know, really fits you well, and you know, I kind of feel sorry for people that go into high-tech business and try and build a business, because you're guaranteed to be obsoleted in, what, pick a period of time, right? Three years, four years? Ever, anybody ever remember Wang? You know, Wang was the best word processor you ever saw. You bought a whole system and you put it there and you paid lots of money for that system. Well, sorry, Mr. Wang, it, it, didn't, it didn't last. The nice thing about this business is bodies don't change. You know, we're getting a little bigger at times and stuff, but people want to move and they've got money to move. So you're not going to obsolete this business. You can run yourself out of business if you don't have proper economics, but it's a business that has long longevity to it. Particularly, uh, our customer is probably an older customer, 50-ish, 45, baby boomers, got money, want to travel. And you'll notice a pattern. The blue dots are where we sell most of our tickets. The other dots are where people want to go. So we take those people in the cold north and we move them to the south. So that's that sun and fun leisure destination. And once again, uh, you can see down at the bottom, uh, this point, we had 50 airplanes, 76 cities, and 171 routes. Anybody understand the, the power of a network? They're exponential. The more points you have and the more you can connect them, you get uh, the ability to really leverage the network. So as we build more destinations and more uh, cities, we start seeing the connection. And the other thing you can see here, as far as route goes, probably from you know, Lake Michigan on down to you know, the Dakotas, those people can go both directions. Otherwise, you know, if you're east or west of that, you're going to go to the east or the west, respectively. So we don't fly long haul. We won't take you Transcon. We'll just take you from kind of a little east of Chicago to Vegas or, you know, the Dakotas to Florida. This is our 2016 uh, setup, August. We have 83 airplanes, 111 cities, and 322 routes. Only about 85% of those are competitive. So our model has uh, really kind of been bulletproof. Uh, not kind of, it has been. And it uh, has worked exceedingly well. We're 52 quarters profitable. We lead the industry in margins. This year, with oil being down, we're 30% operating margins. You go back and study the history of the airline business, 3 and 4% were good operating margins at one time. They're not good operating margins, but that was considered reasonable. Balance sheets are being remade. Delta, American, United are all doing exceptionally well. Um, it's a good time for the transportation in this, in, in this country, and you want that. You want those guys to be successful so they can invest in new airplanes, <clears throat> they can afford to improve their products and doing things. When an industry is always on the edge of bankruptcy, it's tough. It's tough to do. So you're really seeing a re renovation in the industry and the consolidation that went on in the last few years has been good for the industry. Consumers may not think so, and, and you also have the congressional types who want to legislate this business. Unfortunately, they're experts because they fly once a week back to their district, right? So they know all the things they need to do. They're, Mr. Schumer is suggesting that he wants to legislate seat size, you know, so that we have to have a particular seat. So I think there's a yearning in certain uh, parties for uh, deregulation, or regulation again, re-regulation, I should say. Anyway, the, as, as Ann said, we're uh, just around $3 billion in market cap. Uh, we've grown to a billion two in revenues. Um, let me just back up a little bit. Am I going the wrong way? So there's a five-year summary of the, the revenues and expenses, operating margins and percentages. 
for an airline to produce a 37% EBITDA margin is kind of unheard of, but that's okay. I like that. We're on the receiving end of it. Um, my benefit is that I still own 20% of the company. So when a lot of people in the, this industry, historically, when they get their stock, the airline industry has a parabola effect on a public company. If you look at JetBlue, they skyrocketed up to $55 a share, and, and then it went back down to the single digits. People like to sell on the way up or at the top, right? So I've uh, fortunately held on to mine because I just felt it was a great investment, and we were really different. So it's been a great uh, investment, and uh, you know we also were the least uh, capitalized company in many generations. We, I did it, uh, wrote checks out of my own account uh, for three million dollars of working capital, and that's it. JetBlue had 170 million. Uh, so those are the those are differentiators. We we had to make this work because if we didn't, it was yours truly was going to be uh, out some more money. That bad money was going to continue to be bad. But you can see the earnings per share, and, and in particular the end of uh, 15. We jumped up substantially. That's the benefits of oil. So, um, and then the balance sheet, um, we've, uh, we've paid back to shareholders over $600 million in the past uh, six, seven years. Uh, so we keep those ratios up there. Return on capital, return on investment is, again, second to none uh, in, the, in the business. So anyway, that's an overview as to where we are. Why don't you uh, come on up, Ann, and uh, I will. I got a book list up there too if you if you ever get around to that, but thanks for um, for setting the stage. So I'm struck, you know, you, you talk about the the opportunities of, of your business strategy and, and the opportunities to some extent from deregulation, but I'm also, as I listened to you, I was thinking of the, the quick story you told about being a young man and just being in awe of one of these big jets and just thinking, you obviously have a fascination. So I'm wondering, you know, how much do you think your success is that combination of that underlying passion that, that led you to this industry as well as your, as your more direct business success? Um, certainly, I, it brought me to the business, but the interesting thing, you find a lot of people who bring different disciplines aren't successful. And I hope there aren't any pilots in the room, but um, for whatever reason, if you're a pilot and a commercial pilot, they've been notoriously unsuccessful because they don't think of the business aspects more so than they do of just the operational aspects. And, and it's a, business is never one element. It's not just revenue and it's not just expense. It's a combination of the two. And um, you have to be in the right place. You have to be objective and you've got to be... Uh, you know, kind of really on your game with your numbers uh, and knowing how to price, knowing where the market is. Um, and so it's uh, certainly the passion gets you into it. At, yeah. at that point, you better be on your game because, and this is any industry, you know, to start up, what's to me, the and, and one of our investors, we have T. Rowe Price, those of you guys that know, have been in the stockholder literally since we went public in 06, 07. And they said the hardest thing they've seen is to take a startup company and turn it into a billion-dollar-plus organization. That is, that's, you know, that's, it's all the things about growing from an infant to a, an adult and all the things you have to do and the systems you have to put in place and the management that has to grow with it. Because we have over 3,000 people now, and we did, that first thing you saw, we had 50 people. So how do, you, how do you grow that? How do you put your personnel in place? How do you not... Uh, you know, make the mistakes, stub your toe, or, or just uh, don't keep up with what you have to do. Yeah. So as you have done that scaling, have there been any 
particular surprises as, as you've scaled up from, from 30 to where you are today? What have you as, uh, learned well, about the, the that? Well, the real surprise is I was able to kind of stay on top of it um, <laughs> because I was not a big company guy. I mean, I haven't yeah. worked in big organizations. And, you know, if you bring somebody out of a United American or Delta where they've got, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a $37 billion business and uh, they, they, they see systems, they see processes, they're not afraid of size, the hardest part of this business uh, growth is you, we've been through three management teams. Hmm. And a guy who can run five airplanes, person who can do that, their ability to scale up to run 80 airplanes right. is a completely different management skill than it uh, was then. Um, frankly, there's been only two people who have kind of done the journey inside our organization from the get-go, and one of them's our CFO, and he's 37 years old, and he gets it. Hmm. He was able to kind of step back and, and not only grow in his skill, because he came in as a bookkeeper, you know, and he's now CFO, so he grew his own skill, but he grew his management skills to stay on top of a 3,000 people organization uh, from a 50 person organization. And that's, that's the, that cubic Rubik's cube of how do you put all those pieces together to do it. And frankly, we had a lot of people that um, just couldn't keep up. And it's a tough thing to do because the organization needs that manager that can take it up or stay on top of 80 airplanes. It's completely better systems and, and processes than it is even 40 airplanes and 20 airplanes. So mm-hmm. yeah. those are the tough things. Do you think those, those management lessons about how you scale and adapt, is that something you can teach in business school? Is that something you can teach as you're mentoring um, colleagues? How, how do people learn that or develop that? Um, it's, I think certain people have instincts for it. Like this you know, gentleman, our CFO I'm talking about, he just has a great way with people. And you see people that they, they're empathetic. Um, this guy is always reaching out to people. He's talking to them. He's, he's, he's got a friendly way about him, but he's nobody's fool. Um, and then, then the second piece of that is you've got to be honest with your people. And you've got to be able to talk to somebody and tell them what's not working. And if they can't move on or fix it, you've got you to make changes. Um, we do what we call a forced ranking in the organization. We've got 43 directors. We put all the vice presidents in the room, and everybody's got to sit there and talk about their, their people. Mm-hmm. So if you've got four or five uh, directors, and, you know, here's Joe and Harry and Sally, and, and you know, and, and then everybody gets ranked. Well, this one guy we have in the organization now has got four directors, three directors that are in the last three or four. You kind of sit back and you go, you know, Joe, that's, that's not a good... And this isn't one guy. This is kind of a balloting of, you know, you, you just, then you just tally it up. So it's what people think. And that, what you find is that cumulative knowledge, there are no secrets inside of organizations. There are no secrets inside of families. You know who the strong people are and you know who the weak people are. And if an organization does not cleanse itself, it's the pond that continually you know, takes care of the algae and, and the, keeps itself clean. If it doesn't do it, the good people will leave. Uh, then they're, they're always the first to leave because they know they can go do something uh, else. Very difficult to do. It's tough. That computer screen, you know, will give you the answer you want. That person is going to talk back to you. Mm-hmm. And I've only had one person in my 30 years plus of doing this that said to me after I told him I didn't think he was doing a very good job, said, you know, you're right. I need to fix it. Yeah. One person. And people are very defensive about their, you know, their, their own beliefs and such. And I think they know in their heart of hearts that the things you're telling them are probably accurate and true, but it's hard for people to admit to it. Sure. 
So who, through the years, who or what types of people have been your mentors or who are your peers that you, you know, talk shop with, get advice? Yeah. Um, the first guy who got me going was a fellow named Terry Ashton, and he was a former, former senior executive at uh, Hughes Air West. And um, they were based in Las Vegas back in the 70s. And uh, he joined our little company up there, uh, the West Air one that you saw, and came in later as CEO. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from him, um, just, just the skills of talking to people. And, and unfortunately, the business, we, we did a jet startup at that time in 1981, and it didn't work. It was a bad management team with a bad business product at a bad time. And of course, Mr. Uh, Ferris, who was running United, sat on us uh, as well. So it was, it was MBA of the first order. But uh, Terry was a terrific uh, mentor and then um, a business partner I've just had great um, uh, respect for, uh, Robert Pretty. Um, he started uh, ASA Airlines, which was ultimately <coughs> a Delta connection carrier and then was sold to SkyWest here in the last few years. But a brilliant guy, uh, just a no-nonsense fellow and um, kind of bottom line fellow. Um, so those, those guys have been really uh, key, and, and you know, a number of other guys. My business partner many years. We were a yin and yang, and, and if you go into business with somebody, do not go into business with the same as you. Hmm. Uh, my college roommate uh, married, he, was, he became a lawyer, and he married a lawyer. That lasted about a year. You, know, <laughs> you don't want to come home to that every night. So um, I was the financial type and more the, the, the kind of geeky one, and, and Tim, my partner, was... Mr. Marketing and, uh, you know, could control a room and, and uh, we were a good team together, dynamic. We, we fit each other's, you know, weaknesses and strengths uh, were uh, multiplied because of uh, what his capabilities were. But, um, you know, learning experience all the time. So if you think back to your days as an MBA student at Berkeley and you imagined back then if you thought about your career, is there any resemblance between what you imagined you would do and the path you would take and, and what's actually happened? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not surprised that I got into business. I've always had a, I think that we're all wired in a certain way. And I knew early on, looking back on myself, that I was entrepreneurial and I, was, I wanted to do something. And I was always looking at an angle to do this or to do that. And I wake up thinking about things. And I, I tell my kids that you really figure out what you want to do or what you are when you catch yourself daydreaming. And what does your mind default to? What do you, what do you go back to? What do you twist over, and, you know, and... That's what really floats your boat. Um, that's what you should do. And business was mine. And I wasn't sure where I'd go, but um, I know the one, the best class I remember from Berkeley. I was a bad MBA student, I might add. I was cynical, and I just, I was, I wasn't the right guy. And I didn't go have any business experience either, which was probably a problem. But the one class that came through that was really interesting is they brought over these senior guys, uh, probably my age or a little younger at the time, and uh, I was fascinated listening to them talk. Um, head of Transamerica, uh, the, um, uh, I can't remember their name, the, the boutique uh, sh uh, banking shop, uh, investment bankers that took Apple Public, 78, 79, and uh, People's Express. And you just listen to these guys talk, and they're no nonsense. They were, you know, really just good guys, uh, you know, good stories, uh, great perception of what made it work, what didn't work, the mistakes they made. Um, you know, and I was just really, I never missed that class. So it was, it was good. Yeah, great. So we were talking a little bit, um, thinking back, of talking about business school and at dinner, you were talking about the importance of uh, IT and, and uh, how critical that is to business. Well, do you think that business schools today are 
preparing business students for a world in which IT is so critical? Do you see that in the people you work with, hire? Do you think we can do more or better? Um, you know, IT is, um, I don't know, with, you know, in business, it, IT is more of a, a science-oriented thing rather than a business. I, you know, I, my, historically, my sense of business has been, particularly graduate school, not so much the IT side, but, mm. you know, accounting, uh, marketing, you know, those types of things. Um, but IT is, you know, some of the best guys in IT are not good college students. Um, they just don't think that way. They're not wired that way. Um, the hardest thing with IT is to, one, find good quality people. And what's quality? Um, it's tough to find management in IT that can both sit down and, and code and then turn around and manage people because when you're doing IT, you're wired a certain way. And that doesn't mean you want to talk to a lot of people. And furthermore, you're not comfortable talking to a lot of people. And furthermore, you're not front comfortable confronting people. And so organizationally, it's a real challenge to put IT together in, in, uh, with both the management structure that you need. And then on top of it, you've got this customer internally. In many cases, you've got to please. It's called all these departments. So you not only have to manage your own people, you've got to manage and be nice to the customers. And the customers are jerks sometimes. Um, and, you know, so we've, we've fought a lot of battles, and the guy who runs our IT shop is a brilliant guy, but he's a pain in the ass, you know, and, and he just gets into guys' faces, and, and to his defense, the, the users a lot of times don't know what they want. So you're building stuff, and a user who can kind of sit down, and, and I tell people the worst person to define the use for uh, an IT tool is the user himself or herself because they just don't get it, how to, to structure it. And furthermore, you never want to build an IT program uh, where you sit down and write a book this, this thick of all the prerequisites. You want to start with a germ and build a little one-room shack, and then you build the second level, and you build the third level, and you tack it on. And then once you have some ideas, you then have kind of a bigger picture where you can go, but you've got to get something in somebody's hands quickly. Uh, having said that, that's hard to do. So um, I joke that we're an IT shop that flies airplanes. Um, if you're selling your business on the web, we're 93% of our sales come through the web. And you don't control your own res system and all your own aspects of that. And mind you, the travel company that, that Ann mentioned, uh, we sell third-party products. So we sell hotel packages, we sell rental cars, we sell uh, different features and such. And we want to do more of that. But that's all IT-centric and how you present it, how you package it, how you price it, how do you discount it, you know, you, what's the rules engine you have to put together you know, when you're putting these things in, in play, um, it's pretty complex stuff. Uh, so um, it's a skill set that, um, I don't know, it, it's, it, coding is how most of these guys start. Um, but, um, you know, you can take a good manager and make them a manager of IT. Mm. And I think in many cases you'll find in organizations that that manager is, is probably a weak coder or the like, mm -hmm. but he or she have good skills in managing people, but they understand the business enough that they can talk to management and they can cross that bridge. Because really what IT is is nothing more than crossing bridges. Mm. You know, it's somebody who can walk across that bridge and talk to IT and then turn around and talk to users. That's what they are Everybody's a valuable person inside an organization. Some people are more valuable than others. And that we've got about seven or eight of those product managers that to me are the most valuable people in the organization. Because if they walk out the door, I haven't got anybody that can replace them. Because they've got all this institutional knowledge and they know how to, to work both sides. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, I don't, I don't wake up in a sweat with those guys, but I, I make sure we, we 
TLC. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So maybe we should take some questions from the audience. If you yeah. have a question, we have microphones so we can get it in the recording. So just um, raise your hand and we'll have some microphones around here. Over here, Tim. How many alums are here? Yeah? Okay. Welcome. Okay. <laughs> I'm an alum. That's true. My question would be, um, I'm from Fresno, by the way, so I was very interested to find out about Allegiant Air having, mm -hmm. you know, originated in Fresno. Yeah. How did you find out about Allegiant Air as a troubled airline, as a well, potential, you know, acquisition? Well, my, I, when I started my first company, uh, uh, West Air, we were in Chico at first, then we moved to Fresno in 85, 86, and I met a fellow named Mitch Ali there, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He had a shop of about seven or eight people, IT, and he was doing things back then that were just amazing. And he uh, came over, and I've always been very IT-centric, and he rewrote all of our operational stuff. At that time, we were part of the United Network, so they had the front end, the Apollo uh, reservation system, and then when you checked in at the gate, that was Apollo. But he did the flight operations, the maintenance, and all of those things. And so when we went to ValueJet, um, we started Ticketless. I was a big believer that tickets were a waste of time and money and, and the like. And so uh, he built the front end. He wrote one of the first standalone reservation systems for the airline industry in 1993. And he did it in 90 days. That's drop jaw when you think about the ability to do things. So we started that airline in October, late October of 93. Uh, we advertised. People called us. We took their information. We fed it back to them, their flight schedules. We took their credit card over the phone. We ver verified the credit card. No internet, mind you. And we posted the books that night. So if you bought your ticket with us, we took your money, we put it on the books, and we set up the liability, what we call the air traffic liability. When you showed up at the um, ticket counter, you know, Gallagher, you just say your name, hit the G, we give you a plastic boarding card, and that now did all the accounting in the background. It was all integrated. And um, it was slick. We had three people in accounting, and we did $10 million of business in the first month. Um, revolutionized the business and you all today use Ticketless because Mikey, you ever see that commercial, the, uh, the food commercial, you know, with the cereal? <laughs> we were Mikey. And that was okay. I like being <laughs> Mikey. I'm willing to stick my neck out. But uh, um, Mitch did all that. And then um, he started Allegiant because he loved the business so much in 97. I was not a part of it. And I lent him some money in 2000, 2001 because the world started going upside down. And um, he put it through Chapter 11 uh, when he had to, and I came out the back end as the biggest creditor. So that was me and with a, what you saw that first map up there, summer of 01, right before 9-11. Other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much, by the way, uh, but for, for speaking here this evening. Sure. Um, a lot of the airlines that I talked to, um, they are interested in you know, getting uh, alternative fuels. One of the companies I have makes makes alternative fuels for uh, aircraft. Right. But what's interesting is a lot of them have been sort of cornered by doing fuel contracts as a hedge. And as fuel prices have gone down, a lot of them have really taken a beating in the last year or so. I was wondering, how did you guys, how did you do? <laughs> we stopped hedging in 2007. Um, we were the first company to stop it. And back then, uh, the Wall Street types... It was kind of like you check a box. Are you hedging? Yes. So when we started looking at it, there's a couple of real fundamental problems with hedging fuel. Uh, it's a business we don't know. So you buy a hedge, and there's a couple of fundamental ways you buy a hedge. You buy a, 
a spread around the, do- uh, the thing. So if it's a if it's a $50 barrel of oil, you can buy a hedge that says, we'll pay you if it goes over 60, but if it goes below 40, you've got to pay us. And so most guys would put that type of hedge on, right? Um, and I, you know, I, we were started thinking about it, and you look at what is the reason you hedge. You know, they, you hedge because you're supposedly managing your revenues and matching expenses and, and fuel and the like. But the problem is that uh, oil is, is, was so volatile in the last 10 years, 12 years, uh, particularly in 08, uh, if you graph the price of oil, it went from, uh, in the space of a year and a half, it went from $50 a barrel up to 147 And at the time, Goldman Sachs, their analyst was saying oil was going to $200 a barrel. So what happened to you if you bought a hedge along that way, or hedges? If you're United Airlines, they bought hedges at $125, $130 it's going to 200 If it goes to 200 they'll be out of business because you can't take the fares up at the same pace. But the problem is oil hit 147 then it fell like a stone. And it was at $35 a barrel eight months later. So what happened? United on the way down on that hedge, they had to, they're paying money out like crazy because they went below that 40 bucks. And this is a cash and carry business. There's no credit in this. So you, their balance sheet is just getting consumed. Southwest did uh, refinancing on airplanes at 15% because they're a big hedge, hedge company. So we quit it in 07 and we didn't have any of those problems. Plus we killed it when oil fell and we didn't have any uh, overhead. In the past year, you've heard of Delta's taking a couple billion dollars of losses, Southwest has, um, because they bought these hedges. And when oil in, what, early 14 was at $100 a barrel or something like that, and they're hedging it at, at that, and starts coming down, I mean, they just got to pay up. So it's been good for us. We, furthermore, if you buy an oil uh, hedges, you're speculating. There's no transparency. You don't know what's inside them. You don't know what it costs to put that on. Furthermore, in the U.S., you can't get a pure hedge. You can't buy a Jet A uh, hedge. You have to buy a heating oil, or uh, you, know, you have crack spreads and all kinds of technical things that go on. So we're just fine with that. If oil goes up strongly, guess what we do? We pull our capacity back. We stop offering uh, seats at prices that don't support that price of oil. And when oil falls, guess what I do on the other side? I start expanding because I've got better margins. We are now running at a 30% operating margin which is unheard of in the business. So, uh, no, I don't hedge, and we don't want to hedge. Last but not least, it is the most miserable accounting exercise you've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten into hedge accounting or all that stuff. The PCAOB and the uh, accountants sit around thinking up stuff that, unbelievable. I, I, nothing personal, but some of you guys going into professional accounting, I used to do that, I might add. Um, it's a tough world out there with a PCAOB on top of you. So, um, um, but we, we still need you. <laughs> we still need you. Other questions? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, just curious with the growing company, of, um, could you discuss your corporate governance philosophy and approach a little bit and what have been the ups and downs of that and challenges and um, how that's worked out? Well, with regard to corporate governance, I assume you mean how we treat stockholders and... And board of directors and... Board of directors, um, okay. Um, I have a very simple mantra. I'm a big uh, believer in stockholder um, benefits. People invest. They want you to do things right. Um, and as I tell our, our management team, when we run the company right, it's our company to run. When we run it bad, the board company, they take over. And so our board, we have six guys, including myself, uh, six people. And um, the board's been in place for many, many years. Uh, we're 52 quarters strong in earnings. We have the best margins in the business. 
Uh, we have issues, there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, so, um, but that board, uh, I like a small board personally. And so I've put people on or asked people to join the board that have dis different disciplines from uh, the former CEO of Air Canada uh, is on our board, the former CEO of a uh, lawyer, and he worked in uh, Washington DC. He's a uh, uh, CEO of World Airways. Um, we have a former uh, president of a subsidiary of American uh, Eagle. Uh, I worked with him uh, in early life, uh, Gary. He's, an, he's a maintenance expert. Uh, Monty, the, the CEO from uh, Air, Cal is, or Air Canada, is a marketing sales expert. Uh, Linda Marvin, our former CFO, uh, she, she runs our audit committee, um, things like that. So um, all these different disciplines. Uh, another gentleman is a, out of the hotel business, so that helps our third-party products. And so those, those folks are, are tremendous assets for us. Um, I'm very... Uh, sensitive to their uh, needs and what they think. Um, but, you know, when you do well and we've been growing, uh, we've turned a lot of capital. Stock price has gone up. We're, we went public at $18 and we're 170 now. We hit 230 last year when, you know, we had a little spike. So the business has been successful and it's, um, you know, my, my big concern is now on corporate governance. You're seeing two schools. I don't know if you remember the big fight that went on at HP here about two or three years ago. And there was a new chairman that came in, this uh, lady, and I'm not sure what her name was. She got into a fight with a lot of the older guys who were on the company and were more entrepreneurial. And you've got this politically correct way of running a company now where you've got to do all these right things. And the last thing you talk about is what's good for the business. And so there's this, this kind of internal fight going on. And, and you're seeing a lot of it. Uh, we have our annual meeting in May. And people write in and they, they, they continually to push us to, to technically change these rules. And... I'm, I'm kind of old school and I'm a pain in the ass about some of this stuff because what we've done is work. We've gotten great shareholder returns and so do we, do we want to change? And I have to be a little more liberal thinking, frankly, but uh, um, if you lose that gusto for what makes the business work and what's proper uh, to run that business, I think that uh, you're going to see a lot of corporations uh, turn into pretty average performers. But they'll be politically correct and they'll have all these uh, folks that are coming in, you know, writing... Uh, you know, rules about you got to do this or got to do that. Um, so I might add, none of our management have uh, uh, employment agreements. I don't believe in those. We pay a simple bonus out if based on performance. We pay pretty low basic salaries. You make your money on the uh, upside. Um, we pay 7%. Uh, we accrue 7% bonus every year. And um, it's, it's taken our people to some of the best paid in the industry, but it's all based on results. It's not based on fixed contracts or things like that. I don't take a salary. I haven't taken a salary for years. I'll get a bonus if we do well, but um, I'm a stockholder first and foremost. One last question. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story. It's very inspiring for someone uh, just starting out. And, uh, I'm curious uh, to get your take on, uh, so for someone with entrepre entrepreneurial interests, like really just starting with their formal business education, uh, what sort of advice you'd, you'd recommend? Um, you know, uh, education certainly helps. I think if I tell you to do one thing is learn accounting, you know, <laughs> learn how to just, that's the language of business. Um, I think I'd read up on a lot of people skills. And the other thing that most people start out with, the worst thing you can do to a young company is give them too much money because they don't learn how to do things inexpensively, efficiently. <laughs> And uh, I've seen more companies killed because they just have lots of money and they, 
you know, they're out buying all the things that don't matter, you know, furniture and, and stuff like that. We made our furniture when I first got into the thing. We went down at night and we bought plywood and we sat there at 7 o'clock at night hammering nails and, you know, sanding it and shellacking it. And that was our desks. Um, and, you know, and it was just, that's what you had to do. And so start small, figure out if your product's got a, a place in the marketplace, be honest with yourself, and, uh, you know, you start in your garage if you have to. Um, but, um, and that's a smaller business. Uh, you know, if you can raise venture capital and the like, you got to put a good management team together and, uh, you know, be uh, on your game, be able to talk a lot of different disciplines. That's a little more sophisticated plan uh, and the like. There aren't too many Mark Zuckerbergs around, you know, that can sit there as sophomore in, in college and uh, Bill, Bill Gates, and uh, the next thing you know, they've got bees behind their name. Um, that's the exception, not the rule. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a passion and an energy, and uh, understand that uh, the odds are against you, but you, you, gotta, you can't think that way. I've never had anybody bring me a business plan that didn't think they weren't going to kill it. And, you know, the objective guy sitting across the table, it's your dream and my money. So let's, let's sort this out. Yeah. And one other person had a... One more? Sure. Yeah. You got a Tim? <laughs> well, they get you on the uh, camera here. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yep. That's fine. Thank you again for coming in here as, uh, sure. as one who's always been passionate about uh, air transport and, and the product and the industry. It's neat to hear, you know, your experiences. Yes. I wanted to ask you about ValueJet. Uh, I remember actually when I was a young boy, I used to fly it down to Florida and whatnot. What caused you to, to sell it to AirTran or to, to move to AirTran? Um, well, the ValueJet situation, they had the, the unfortunate accident in 96, and it was a really fundamental accident. It, um, it, it's a classic case of how do you manage a bad PR situation. And uh, the accident happened in the Everglades, and they couldn't get the plane out of there. And so it was on national TV. and. Um, there were people in a hotel down the street, uh, the family and relatives, who thought that people were still alive at the bottom of the Everglades. I mean, it was really a crazy time. And so, um, you know, um, the name ValueJet became persona non grata. Um, and so what the company did after about another year, year and a half, is they went out and bought this little airline called AirTran and rebranded themselves. Mm. So AirTran was ValueJet with a couple other airplanes, but rebranded. And that was done in 98, 99. And uh, that company was then sold to Southwest for, I think, $2 billion here the last couple of years ago. But the AirTran didn't get by. It was just a small merger, take the name, and uh, you know, move on from a tough legacy at that point. One other question back there? Sure. We've got a question over here. OK. Yes. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Yes. Thank you for coming. Certainly. Um, I actually have two questions. <laughs> the first question you talked about it about all the big mergers with the airlines. Yes. And the latest being, I think, Alaska Air and Virgin America. Um, there's a discrepancy between what consumers think, and you talked about it, and what industry people think. Like, what is that misperception where consumers think that's bad, and industry people think the big mergers are great? So, what what are the consumers not seeing? What are the what are they not knowing that they're not understanding? Well, um Interesting question. Um, airline business was pretty luxurious business for a lot of years, the CAB, and, and even up through the uh, early 90s. Marketing, nobody, the irony of ironies is the airline industry had the most sophisticated pricing 
up to a million pricing changes a day based on demands and very sophisticated, but they had no product management. The product was all the same. And so we started, we were one of the first people, for instance, to start what we call ancillary revenues. So as we got into this in 90 or 2003, um, I was talking to my partners at the time and I said, you know, the price of fuel is going to go up and we can't keep raising fares. And I don't know what it is psychologically, but if somebody gets to our website and they've got $79 as a price point they'll do, and I need 110, I can't put 110 up because they won't even start the transaction. But once they psychologically have gotten that $79 seat, they'll think that, well, certainly I want to sit up front. Anybody ever fly Southwest before this current situation? You remember what happened with Southwest? If you didn't get there an hour ahead of time, what'd people do? They'd line up. They would stand there for an hour. Well, what does that tell you? There's a value. And what does everybody do when they get on a Southwest airplane? Where do they sit? Front back. Front has value. The back of the airplane isn't as valuable. People will pay for that stuff. So we started putting seating assignment, things like that in there. And so you've seen an evolution of product in the last 10 years. And in 08, when the world got so tough, the big guys started charging for bags. When we started charging for bags, we had 1.1 bags per people, per person. That's a, on a 150-seat airplane, that's 165 bags. We raised our rates and started charging you to put a bag. That dropped to 0.55. So now I'm carrying half the bags. I don't have to take them to altitude. I don't lose them. I don't damage them. Um, and the last piece we did is we started charging for overhead because people were bringing steamer trunks into the cabin. You know? <laughs> people are very trainable. They will react to economics. We're economic animals. We will do what you tell us to do. If, and so, you know, now you can't put anything in the overhead. So we started charging for overhead. You can put something free under the airplane, but we're a low-cost carrier. And if you want to go from A to B, and here's my ideal customer. You go to the Internet, you buy your ticket, you go to the gate, you get your boarding pass electronically, you get on the airplane, uh, and you get off the airplane, and you put your stuff under the seat. After that, I'm selling you services. That's what I sell you A to B. And so the consumer today, to, it's a long-winded way to get around the consumer today is uh, upset about, I think, um, information that isn't uh, well disseminated because of the way the architecture of these uh, global distribution systems work. So you could buy an American situation and uh, you buy it on Expedia and they don't tell you on Expedia that it's going to cost you $20 for your bag. And you get to the airport and you go to check your bag and what do you mean? You didn't tell me. Well, that's a, a connection issue and there's a lot of background stuff that goes on with that. In our case, you can't get our stuff except on our website, so you never have that surprise. You may not like it, but you'll do it. And, and my kind of hard-ass statement is, it's not whether people like it or not, it's whether they do it. Because nobody likes to pay for it, but at the end of the day, when our price, including bags and all this stuff, is still half of what you'd pay on somebody else, people are very rational about how they make that decision. So, you know, culminate all of this with tight airplanes, full airplanes, uh, TSA being a pain in the butt, um, you know, you know, problems. You've got the DOT that um, didn't want, uh, they made an arbitrary rule about three hours sitting on a tarmac. Not a good thing. But you sit on a tarmac for three hours and then we take you back to the gate when I could have taken off. And so there's, there's, there's unintended consequences happen all the time. And so what you have today is a lot of canceled flights. Airlines just cancel flights quick. DOT will tell you, no, they don't do that, but there's data out there that proves it. You go back before it, and they cancel. Because it's, you know, they're just not gonna put up with the, the, the headache of being fined $25,000 a person on an airplane. So, um, 
you know, it's the bus service today. Uh, there's nothing elegant about it. You don't get products that you'd like to have because people don't want to pay for it. It's as simple as that. And in our case, and you're spending your money, we give you the product that, uh, you know, is basic. Uh, there's nothing fancy about it. It's all single class of service. You buy your first class seat, as someone joked, when you buy the ex window exit uh, type of thing. Um, so, um, but do the majors like it? Yes, they do because they're making money, and it's good for everybody, all things considered. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm, I'm, I got that long winded. Only one? No. Yeah. Second one. So, I wanted this more. Oh, to a more general question. I wanted to ask: You've grown several companies. Um, do you still hire when you grow these companies? And if so, is there like an indispensable quality that someone has to have for you to hire them? Or is there a quality that you cannot tolerate that will absolutely disqualify <laughs> someone? Um, the, the not tolerate is, you know, you gotta be able to work in, in a team environment. Uh, the indispensable quality is that you come in and you can work unsupervised, that you, you bring a positive outlook to the job every day, uh, that you're, you know, you're there to you know, work with the team and to succeed. And, and uh, you know, a thousand people pulling in the same direction is an unstoppable force. A thousand people that aren't working together and running around knocking heads is chaos. So um, you know, we gotta get those people, and that's my job. And I try and lead from the back, so to speak. I'm, I'm there cajoling, pushing, helping, and as I tell our senior guys, you have two things to do when you wake up. You take care of your people. Can you do all the necessary things that, to make their job easier so that they wake up thinking about their job? And secondly, are the processes and the systems where they need to be to do their job properly? Tools, are they doing it? Do you understand what those systems are, processes? And are we improving those to become more efficient and stay on top of our game? So there is only one remaining piece of business. Um, we, uh, I know you come from the desert, and it does get chilly there at night, as it does here in Davis. So we hope that you will take a graduate oh. school of management jacket for those chilly nights. Thank you and, very um, much. Is that very nice, huh? But thank you so much. That was fantastic. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.